Hello and welcome to Western Reaches number 17. We are a Toshi Station podcast on the Toshi Station network and I'm one of your hosts, Seth. With me as always is Megan. Hello. So this week we're talking a lot about games and quite a bit about books. Bit of both because we love both. Our main topic this week is Mass Effect Andromeda because the trailer dropped and there are a bunch of reveals now. Suddenly everything's coming out at once, which is great. So if you want to hear about that, listen to our main topic later on. First up though, we have books. And I haven't been reading much because I've been traveling for the last two weeks and I gave up on Station Eleven, which was the one book I was reading. Um, so Megan, what are you reading recently? So it's been um, a strange couple weeks for the United States. We had an election. And so last week, I was not really into fiction at all. I was sort of trying to figure out what was going on with the real world. Um, So I was thinking that, like, I wouldn't have a lot to talk about this week. But I realized that I had... I read a lot the week before, so I have a little bit, and doing nano and playing games helped me kind of process some of what I've been feeling this week, and hopefully things will continue to do that. So I had a lot uh, the week before. (laughs) It's good that games and nano is helping, though. I think it's kind of the same for me. Even though I live in New Zealand, I'm still processing that stuff. Yeah, and I'm I'm not going to talk about it too much here, but it definitely, there was that sort of feeling of what's the point, and then that feeling of you kind of have to make it have a point, and that's what's meaningful about it. Yeah. But, yeah, well, that's, um, I don't think that's, this is the quite the right time to address too much of that. But, so, yeah. <laughs> the uh, last two weeks ago, I read Good Morning Midnight, which we talked about in the previous episode. And it's funny because we were comparing it to Station Eleven and talking about how it seemed like a very, um, more on the literary side of science fiction. And Good Morning Midnight had this really cool concept. Um, It's written by a a woman called Lily Brooks Dalton. It's about a guy who's like alone in the Arctic and a woman who's part of a spaceship crew going to Jupiter. And That's sort of right. That's the one there. I want to read. Yes. So yeah. the jacket basically says it's like about their isolation and about them learning to uh, sort of learning what it is to be people in isolation. Um, unfortunately, I found that the book, A, wasn't really about that and B, just wasn't really to my taste. It, it wasn't bad. It was really literary. So a lot of focus and, and like by that, I mean a lot of focus on the inner monologues of people and not so much on the science, like something happened to Earth and there wasn't much detail given about it and I wanted more detail because I wanted more science. Uh-huh. Um, the The woman on the spaceship was not alone. She had a crew and her crew was like, they were fine, but they weren't super interesting, but it wasn't really about her isolation the way I thought it would be. So... Not bad. It had some surprises to it, but it just wasn't really my cup of tea for, I think, a lot of the same reasons we talked about last week or last episode. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed to hear it's not as much about the isolation as the blurb kind of lay on. No, it was a little more feel-good and less stark than I wanted it to be. And, like, that's maybe that's for somebody, but that wasn't what I wanted this book to be. Yeah, I'm like, 
feel good's good, but I wanted I wanted a stock book about isolation. Yeah. If um <laughs> I think if you want a stock book about isolation, there's one called The Dog Stars, which was a post apocalyptic book about a pilot. Um Dog Stars by Peter Heller. And that one I recommend much more highly if like <laughs> it's kinda silly to say, but if you like the blurb of Good Morning Midnight. Just read Dog Stars instead. <laughs> I'm going to do that, I think. <laughs> um, this So that week, there was also a, another sort of science fiction book that I read that had been, I think it was on a best of list. I don't quite remember, but had a really good blurb, and I didn't end up liking it as much as I would have liked to. Um, it was one called Dark Orbit by Carolyn Gilman which was about a crew of a spaceship sent to a planet that had these odd gravitational fluctuations, and they find people, humans basically there, who have adapted to living in these fluctuations, and it's supposed to be about sort of exploring the way this planet works. Um, and it, again, wasn't quite as hard science as I wanted it to be. It went into a sort of spirituality direction that, that just wasn't what I was looking for. Oh. It kind of used itself as a mouthpiece for different philosophies. Like, you'd have characters that said, oh, this character represents this philosophy. But that never really tied into the plot very much. It was more like, let's just explore putting all these people in this scenario, but not in a particularly plot heavy way um which mm, i thought it was it was pretty it was a uh, kind of a a well a nice enjoyable story but it didn't get into the nitty-gritty of the science the way i wanted it to um and the the main character was like on the surface she sounds really cool she was sort of a freelance space explorer um, very confident, very straightforward, but unfortunately that straightforwardness or that straightforwardness and open-mindedness kind of came off as having not a lot of character at all. So I, I wanted more uh, from her as well. That sounds kind of disappointing. Honestly, the way you're describing it, it sounds kind of like it's trying to be a Zelazny book, but kind of failing. Not that I've read it, so I have no clue, but it hmm. kind of sounds like that from your description. Huh. Um, so nothing from Zelazny is coming to my mind immediately that would make that comparison, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just might mean <laughs> I'm not thinking of, of the it's thing that like, it would connect to. The general idea of like exploring philosophies, but generally Zelazny does that in a much more plot-relevant way. Yes, that sounds that sounds right to me. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So one that I would highly recommend um, was the, the Dream Quest of Velet Bow by Kidge Johnson, who I, uh, I started reading actually after Alex Freed, the Star Wars writer, uh, recommended her on Twitter. She did this, uh, it's a short novel, it's basically Lovecraft fan fiction. So she takes a, a Lovecraft story called The Dream Quest of Unknown Cadath and writes from the point of view of a character who lives in this dream world, this alternate world that Lovecraft came up with. And his story, which I have not read, I just, I looked at it when I was looking at background for this. His story was about a character who fall, like, falls into this dream world where like the elder gods live and all this strange atmospheric stuff goes on. Um, whereas 
Kids Johnson takes it as the main character is a university professor in this dream world. So she's from the other realm, and it's kind of the opposite, where she goes and explores and is looking for our world. Um, and it was beautifully written. A lot of things in it connected to the Lovecraft story in ways that I didn't recognize at first, so you will notice that if you're familiar with Lovecraft, a lot of the same concepts are there, but she writes it with such, like, elegance and weird, like, biological creepiness that it's just, it's incredible, and it's a very feminist story. Um, it addresses the lack of women in Lovecraft. It is about this you know, very intelligent, very well-traveled professor looking for a female student. Um, there's a lot of discussion about why women might or might not be involved in stories like this. And uh, it was really, it's rare that I say that something is beautiful, but it was really quite, quite beautiful Lovecraft fan fiction. <laughs> I love you putting it that way. Beautiful Lovecraft fan fiction. I really, I just requested it at the library because that sounds really cool. <laughs> It was absolutely, like, it It had all the fanfic stuff. Like, I think the main character had been in a romantic relationship with one of the Lovecraft characters at one point. But it was uh, yeah. also just incredibly well done, and I always love that. I always love stuff that, like, sounds a little, you know, people can, can kind of knock it, but then you actually show them, and they're like, no, this is actually incredibly well done. It, it worked on a lot of feminist levels in that way too i like the sound of that yeah that author um i read a short story collection by her as well and i uh was really was really blown away so i definitely recommend that what which author was that again kidge johnson k-i-j is the first name okay all right sounds like a cool person seems like it i don't really know much <laughs> about her except through these books but. Yeah. So speaking of feminism, the um, I helped kickstart a project called the Offworld Collection a while ago, which was a um, spinoff of a website also called Offworld by Lee Alexander, who is a video game critic. She was involved in the Gamergate thing in that a lot of people yelled at her because she was writing about feminism during the Gamergate thing. So, it, she does not write anymore about uh, games, unfortunately, but she's really good. And she briefly, her and a, a woman called Laura Hudson ran a website called Offworld, and this book was a, a collection of essays from it and from authors that did similar work. So, I don't think you can pick it up now without having done the Kickstarter. I'm, I did a quick, quick look at it, and it didn't seem like you could. But um, if you can get it, it's really, really well done. And her style is kind of what I try to do when I write game reviews. She has this really distinct way of switching between the player's perspective and the character's perspective completely seamlessly. So it, it almost goes from sort of an academic look to a really emotional look really fast. And it's, it's beautifully done. So um, if you like women getting mad about video games, and also some really uh, insightful, beautiful work that was definitely checked all those boxes. 
honestly, a woman getting mad about video games is one of my favorite things. <laughs> this essay collection was actually a little too um, aggressive for me at times, where I was like, kind of felt like it was preaching to the choir. But then, like, I am the choir, you know? If this is stuff that people haven't heard before, it's really important to get out there. And there was interesting things about people finding trans narratives in games, people finding um, ways to express identity in games. I think I think you would like it, yeah. It sounds cool. I'll see if I can get my hands on it somehow. And she uh, she's on Twitter, and you can find some of the essays. You can just find them online, so it's worth looking that way, too. It took me a while to read because I got the digital version, and I just kind of kept forgetting that I had it for a while. But I finally um, focused on it and <laughs> read it all the way through, and it was really good. That's so cool. And lastly, the thing that I actually read this week was Rogue One Catalyst, which I'm about three quarters of the way through, and I'm it. It's a very Lucino book, if you know, you know, if you, <laughs> if you read Tarkin, it's very, very similar. So I'm enjoying it. You kind of know what you're getting when you get a Lucino book in a in a good way, usually, you know. Yeah. 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 He's definitely got his own style. Yeah, so um, have you haven't gotten Catalyst yet, correct? No, I haven't, but hopefully soon. Yeah, maybe we'll talk more about that when we get the chance. Yeah, I have one question, though. Do you need to have read Tarkin at all to get any references in that book? No. So Okay, good. <laughs> Tarkin, um, it's not sort of set in a slightly different era. They cross over a little bit, but... You don't need to know anything about Tarkin himself that you wouldn't know from A New Hope. Um, I say that it's similar. It's really similar stylistically. The plot, you don't have to know anything about the Tarkin novel at all to read Catalyst. Okay, cool. That's good to know. Yeah, and I have a feeling that a lot of people are going to be picking this one up as like kind of their introduction to Star Wars books because they'll be seeing it come out when Rogue One comes out and I don't think it's a bad uh, a bad introduction as far as those things go yeah I think Lucina was probably quite a safe choice for that as well yes I, I would agree yeah so um like I said been reading nothing I picked up Twilight Company again which I love um but I have no new insight on that particularly we really um, gotta start a tally yeah yeah I think this is my third time with this book now um but I have been playing a million games mostly in the space of like three days because I was at PAX last week the week before I don't really know anymore um I went over to Melbourne for Melbourne Games Week which I will blab on about a lot soon but first Megan what have you been playing well actually I want to ask you a question first um you uh were reading Station Eleven and gave up on it. Did you have any other things you wanted to say about what did or didn't work with that one? I, I honestly didn't get much further than where I was last time I talked about it. Um, I read a little bit more and I just couldn't get into it. And then it was due back at the library, so I was like, yeah, what's the point of renewing it? I'm just going to take it back. All right, that's fair. That's fair. That answers the question. Yeah, it wasn't really bad or anything. It just wasn't my jam. And I'm still... I'm still kind of riding on the high of 
uh, fifth season, and it's. I feel like it's going to be really hard for me to read anything else until I get my hands on Obelisk Gate. It, I was so close to buying it when I was in Australia, um, but I'm I'm going to wait until it comes into the library. I'm going to be good and read the other books on my list. Actually, no, I did actually start reading something else. Um, What's it called? Immaterial Bodies, I think is what it's called, and it's like a non-fiction thing about... Hang on, let me grab the book. Hmm. It's a non-fiction thing about like the effective capacities of bodies, human and non-humans, as well as addressing the challenges of effective turn. I don't know. It has something to do with bodies being weird and how we perceive our own bodies and how they're affected by stuff, I think. I was really interested in a non-human way. Like I think it goes into AI at some point, possibly. Um, I saw people talking about it on Reddit because of... Uh, that condition that people can get where their arms just stop feeling like their limbs just stop feeling like their limbs and the only thing that they can really do to fix that is to amputate their limbs Um, I can't remember what that's called but I was reading about that and somebody mentioned this book and I was like okay I'll read that book so I started that and so far it's really interesting but really heavily academic and I'm struggling a little bit Wow, that's a heck of a way to go from like a Reddit rabbit hole to an academic text. That that sounds really interesting, though. Is it primarily about injury, or does it also go into like like being trans or having been born without a limb? Like, what's the scope of it? Um, I haven't gotten super far into it so far. It's just been talking about like um uh the the terms they're using or what they mean when they're talking about like bodies and stuff like that. So it's basically setting out the, the meanings for the book at the moment. Cause I'm still in the preface or something. Um, so I can't tell you too much about what's in it, but it looks really cool. Okay, cool. And yeah. I'm sure that will have some interesting things to say in terms of AI. Like I, um, went to a talk at, at South by Southwest last summer, which was really interesting about, robots kind of learning their surroundings and how they would have to figure out like how doors worked and stuff and (laughs) it might be relevant to that maybe uh yeah i hope ai does come up and do it it's not on the blurb as far as i remember but i'm also like if you're going to talk about this stuff surely you're going to talk about artificial interpretations of it maybe i'm hopeful interesting but yeah back to games (laughs) Right. So I I played a little bit of Destiny, but mostly I've been playing Dishonored. I I finished the first one, which um, I ended up really enjoying my a lot of my concerns about the morality system that I talked about in the last episode um, were sort of changed because I learned that it's not quite as black and white as I thought it was. A, A friend sort of pointed out that like you can kill all the main the main bad guys and still get a low chaos score depending on how you do in other parts of the level it's much more organic than I thought it was so that impressed me by itself um I started the second one on Friday last Friday and I'm, I'm really enjoying it it's I already like the characters more I was attached to them in the first game but it was one of those slow burn like I can gradually feel myself starting to care but I don't quite care yet <laughs> um, oh, yeah. so I'm in the I'm in the care stage now and it was even the um, the tutorial of Dishonored 2 kind of helped me 
get a better handle on the characters because it shows the the father daughter relationship and I've been playing as Emily because because I can and uh, that's been a lot of fun <laughs> it's I think it's a really cleverly made game um, there is a lot of environmental storytelling which people talk a lot about when they talk about Dishonored but you can just go into a room and be like what what happened here you know there'll be a body or there'll be a note or something and you can get such little glimpses of stories from these tiny little rooms that you don't even necessarily have to go in for your mission you just might end up in them so um the sense of place is really good. In, in both games, you're in a city that's sort of on its way down. And that sense of reclaiming a place that's gradually being lost um, is really effective. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad to hear... Sorry. I'm glad to hear that um, the morality thing was more gray than um, we talked about last time. It was, and in this one too, uh, I'm only on, I'm on the fourth level, the, uh, I just finished the, the conservatory, so I haven't gotten, uh, I'm not too far in yet, but I see already that there's, it's a little less, basically it addresses all the concerns that I had, you know, it doesn't really paint anybody as, as just good or just evil in, in a way that is really effective in the gameplay and it's like it's still a very dark world but it um it feels like a living world which is such a cliche thing to say but I'm struggling to find a better way um rather than a world in which the creators were like well like what they do in Mass Effect where you get you know good points or bad points it's not that simple Okay, cool. Is there, like, a different story between playing as Emily and playing as the other character whose name I don't know? <laughs> so, um, I think the story is the same. You you play for, well, I guess you don't even, you get, like, a five, ten minute cutscene and then you can choose to play as Emily, who's the Empress, or Corvo, who is her bodyguard and also her father. And their powers are slightly different, but I'm pretty sure you go through the exact same locations, you do the same things, regardless of which one you play. The dialogue is slightly different, but the story is the same. Okay, so it's just kind of a cool choice to make. Yeah, and one thing that I kind of think was, was cool and was also a side effect of that was that there isn't a lot of gendered dialogue. Like, I've heard such horror stories of playing as a female character and, you know, people shout slurs and all this, and you don't get a lot of that in this game, and I was realizing that I think it's partially because they wanted the dialogue to be able to be used for both characters, um, <laughs> but the sort of side effect, which may very well be intentional, I think they're they're quite an aware company when it comes to some things, um, but the fact is they just use one set of dialogue so you don't you don't have a lot of opportunities for gendered dialogue which was really nice like it's a violent frightening game at times but I never felt like it was more frightening for women than it would be for anyone else that is something the fact that that's something that you noticed in the game is a little bit sad but also really cool that that that's something you can say about it 
Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's definitely one of those cases where it's a low bar to to jump, <laughs> but it's not, you know, not everybody clears it. Yeah, I mean, and- I'm kind of thinking of Bioshock. Like with Bioshock Infinite, there was the DLC. You weren't playing as Elizabeth in it, but her role felt different anyways. I don't know if D- I'm different in a bad it. way. Yeah, like it felt like it's hard to explain. Um, because in the DLC you're in Rapture instead of in Columbus. I can't remember what the city place, the cloud place is called. Um, but because you're down there and because of the way it's set, Elizabeth feels more like she is in danger, even if she has more power herself, anyways. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. That's uh I haven't I haven't played those, but I, I did notice that there are more they're just playing more women in this game. The the main antagonist is is female, several of the um like the main villains are you have female guards now, which there weren't any before. Um your sort of your main like companion character, the first ally that you get is a black woman with a um an amputated arm so like i was like oh this is cool uh character design you know so that's i liked that um in the representation front it's nice to see companies growing and getting better at that stuff with newer games yeah and it is kind of sad that it's so notable like i wish i didn't have to go down the (laughs) list and say are there people of color are there women because the answer was no so often but in this case it seems to come out on the right side of of the representation checklist even if you know a checklist is not the best way to do this sort of thing yeah that's really cool to hear i will play those games one day the ps4 only aren't they no, I have them for Xbox. And oh yeah, you're an Xbox person. I am. I don't know if they're available for PC or not. Let me find out real I quick. don't think they are, but I could be totally wrong. Uh, it, it is available for Windows, PlayStation, and Xbox. Oh, there we go. I should probably play them at some point then. Yes. I So, like... um, it's always sort of a double-edged sword when I talk about these games because like they're they're very violent but also really enjoyable which is not my usual cup of tea but it's a lot of fun and they are they're good um empowerment which again is a term I don't use very often (laughs) but like you feel cool when you figured everything out but it's also a really complex um well-written world it's not just the power trip it's like the power trip despite the world you know interesting they sound like interestingly nuanced games yes i think so and i I read an interview with the writer uh recently who said he wanted to he didn't want to dumb down the experience like he wanted it to be a, a stealth game that you really had to think about and um i uh I'm saying all this now. I'm I'm going to have a full-length review out later, so I feel like I'm doing spoilers for my own review, but I'm sure I'll have <laughs> more to say later. But there were times where I would traverse an area, 
and then kind of just poke around to figure out what else was on the other side of the area and I'd find a whole new pathway like oh I could have gone this way from the beginning and my experience would have been different there's so many possible strategies for doing each part and that keeps it uh, really interesting that is some good design and I think um that that's something that I went okay so I was at PAX Australia as part of Melbourne Games Week um the week before last and there was a panel I went to there called the psychology of dark souls um which was talking about basically the psychology of dark souls um but why it's a game that people love so much partly and even though it's so damn challenging and it's really, really hard. Yes. <laughs> and I haven't actually played that much of the games. I've watched a lot of other people playing them because I was too much forced to play them before. And I don't have a console that can play them now. Um, and they were talking about like having the different options and being able to actually work things out in a in a way that isn't handed to you, but in a way that feels like when when you do solve an, a problem, like when you beat a boss or solve a puzzle or something, like it feels like you actually learn something from it. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's interesting. I think that's I haven't played Dark Souls. I know some of the characters just from seeing them on the internet, and I know the memes that it's supposed to be so difficult. <laughs> but uh, I imagine that's a hard thing to do to create a feeling both of like almost you're downtrodden by how difficult the game is, but also once you get through it, you're like, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um... And I feel like from your descriptions of Dishonored, not that it's super hard, but just the way that it gives you an actual challenge beyond just shooting people down, I think maybe the psychology there is similar? It sounds like it could be, and there's so many different ways to do things in Dishonored. Like, you could just shoot everybody down if you wanted to, but it sort of... I guess I would describe it as it's exactly as much of a puzzle box as you want it to be. You can... You can puzzle through and strategize, or you can just rush down the middle and fight everyone. I like. Does the fighting people, like going through it as a shooter, basically, does that make it easier? Um. Yes and no. So I would say I'm playing low chaos, which means a lot of stealth, a lot of like shooting people with arrows from a distance. So I haven't gotten into the sword play as much. So basically I think that when you start out, you're going to be like mobbed by people if you go the high chaos loud route, but you're also going to be able to go straight through. So like the, the, the number of people you have to fight is going to be more difficult, but in a lot of cases your actual route is much shorter. So there's a trade-off. Okay. That's cool. There were there were a lot of times where I was like, I'm I should just kill this character, but I didn't want to because it would mess with my chaos rating. So <laughs> I had to reload like over and over again to get the non-lethal action, which was which took like a lot more steps than just going and stabbing them would have done. Yeah. Sounds a little bit like Undertale, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> honestly Except... though, like the whole yes. pacifist, non-lethal route, it's its exactly the same. You know, the mechanics are very different, but the choice is exactly the same. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, 
like I just said, I was at Melbourne Games Week. And so I went to, first off, before I went to PAX, I actually went and volunteered at GCAP, which is Games Connect Asia Pacific, I think is what it stands for. I should know because I volunteered at it. Um, you did so but, much cool stuff recently. Yeah, that was really fun. I wouldn't have been able to go to GCAP if I hadn't volunteered because it's a relatively expensive conference, but it's really, really cool. Um, I managed to make it to a few panels when I didn't have my own shifts on and um one of the ones I went to was about narrative design and like advocating for the story and it was basically about how if you're a narrative designer in a game you've got to learn how to communicate with the rest of the team and work with them and that was a really good talk um it was by uh, I should know her name something Brooks oh my god I can't believe I've forgotten her name uh no her name is is Brooke I think Brooke Mags, there we go, who is um, working on a game called The Guns Between, which is kind of a, it's a no dialogue puzzle game that I think is going to be for mobile devices. It's kind of similar to Monument Valley from the outside. I have no clue because I haven't played it, if it's actually like that in reality, Um, but very highly aesthetic, I guess, with puzzles. And it looks really cool. I'm really excited about that game, but also seeing her talk and how hard they've worked on implementing the narrative within the game makes me really more excited for it too that was bad english but my point stands cool game i also went to a talk about um vr and motion sickness in vr and i learned about like the different locomotion things people are working on there's like the typical you're in a contained box and you walk around that area um which is one of the easier ways to not get people motion sick but also is much more tightly constrained design wise there's also um, using teleportation, which if you've ever played a VR game, there's a good chance you've played a game with teleportation where you um, basically aim with your remote and then push a button and you teleport there. Um, and then there's like, there are other things where they kind of distort y- your camera a little bit. So when you, it feels like you're walking straight, you're actually walking in curves so that they can keep you walking in circles instead of walking outside the bounds oh. of the vr things which apparently that's... can work but also can make people really sick because they're walking in circles <laughs> that's a nifty and slightly creepy solution to the problem yeah and then there's um one there are a whole bunch of different ones but there's also one where like you grab the world and pull it so you pull the world to you instead of you moving through the world um yourself um I feel like there were others. There were heaps. There's also ones where, like, you hit the edge of the border. Like, you walk normally. When you hit the edge of the border um, of the VR cameras, you can push a button and the world, like, kind of flips so that you are facing in the opposite direction. Or, no. Actually, no. Sorry, I'm totally wrong with that. You hold a button, the world freezes, and you turn around within your border, and the world stays where it is, kind of. Which I feel like is a bit Hmm. jarring, but maybe it works. I haven't tried a game with that. But, um... That was really cool to see because when I went to PAX, I ended up playing a whole bunch of VR games um, and most of them were teleport games. One of them, which was Kept, which was the first one I played, which was possibly my favorite VR game I played, um, was like this little kind of puzzle atmospheric game where you're basically in a little contained stone circle and you catch a firefly and you light up these glyphs with the firefly and then the ground opens up beneath you and you have to step into it and fall. And that is terrifying. Like, you don't think it's going to actually be that scary to just step into thin air when you know it's not real. But your brain is just like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Um, yeah. That, that sounds <laughs> intense. 
Yeah, and, now, and that was a really cool game. Correct me if I'm wrong. All this is to keep you from physically walking too far from the VR camera. Is that right? Like this is yeah to solve the problem of having a limited physical space. Yeah. So basically, for people who haven't actually had a go playing VR, um, at least the Vive. I don't know how it is with the other ones because I haven't played much of the other ones. But with the Vive, you have two cameras set up opposite each other and they basically create a square where you can play your game. Um, And in games, when you walk too close to the edge of that square, a wall will kind of pop up telling you you're too close to that. Um, I don't actually know what happens if you walk outside of it with your headset on because I've never done it because I obey the rules apparently. But um, a lot of games, yeah, they'll give you they'll either give you teleportation or they'll give you kind of an enclosed area to work in there. And I think personally, I'm a fan of the enclosed area because I don't like the teleportation. It feels really kind of game breaking a little bit, not literally game breaking, but it kind of breaks me out of the immersion of like real life, which I like in games. So I really like kept because it had, it had the enclosed space, but it still made, it still looked really cool. And it kind of had an art style. It didn't really look like Firewatch, but the way it was designed kind of reminded me of Firewatch's aesthetic. Um, Interesting. That was the first game I played at PAX. So that was like a good start to the week. Um, And then I also played other VR games like A Township Tale, which is a social game um, about like building, kind of building like a community and building a village in a fantasy kind of setting. So you mine and do blacksmithing and basically different people pick up different skills and get good at them and people work together. And it was my first time ever playing a social VR game, so it was really distressing the first time somebody came along, somebody else playing the game, um, and like they, they knocked my pickaxe out of my hand with their pickaxe and kind of just walked away with it, and I was like, excuse me, I was using that. Rude. Yeah, and then I spent the rest of that demo trying to juggle with rocks, and it turns out it's really hard because you can't hold two things at once in VR, like in one hand. Um, huh. So I wasted that demo basically trying to juggle with rocks, and... At the end, it had a timer, so I had to, it shut down at the end of the thing. Um, but I was trying to like do archery, and me and the guy with me who was showing me through the game was like both panicking because we only had like ten seconds left, and I kept dropping all of my arrows, and I was just like, "Oh God, what have I done? I'm useless." Oh no. Um, but that one was cool, and I also saw a talk by some people working on that game about how they're trying to build safe communities and safe experiences within VR. So I'm really curious to see where that group. Um, it's Alta, I think Team Alta is making that. I'm really curious to see where they go with that kind of stuff because safety, personal safety in VR is really important and it's something that's coming up a lot recently. Well, it sounds like your experience with somebody like knocking the pickaxe out of your hand is is part of that conversation. I I don't remember who wrote the article, but I read an, an article recently that said that exact thing. Like there's such potential for... Um, you know, harassment in this kind of environment because you are physically in a space with someone else in a way. Um, did you learn anything particularly that you felt would be particularly effective to prevent that? I actually, I can't remember a lot of the talk. I did write notes, but I haven't actually reviewed them yet. Um, but they talked a lot That's about okay. starting people off within the game where they automatically block out most people and then they let in other settings of communication of their own accord as they go, um, which I think could work with a lot of things. It kind of sets people off at a baseline where they can't be harassed. And if they want to broach that area where they may be able to, they can make that choice themselves. But I'm kind of iffy because it doesn't really stop the harassment itself. It just kind of 
keeps people hidden from it somewhat um i actually during the panel brought up a point myself based off of a black mirror episode um i asked if they could like shadow ban people basically um people who don't know what shadow banning is it's when someone on a forum or a website or something they get banned but they think they can still post so they can keep talking and everything and nobody else sees them and so they huh. get no interaction basically but they still feel like they're there i was i asked if you could do that with people in vr where they feel like they're interacting with others but then they get no no interaction back and would that discourage people because they get that kind of isolation where they just don't exist and that does happen in a black mirror episode i can't remember which one but that's kind of brought up as a punishment thing in the real world and i was like would that work in a virtual world um but there wasn't there was a bit of discussion on that but nobody really had any plans but yeah interesting that's a a brief aside but it seems like Black Mirror is doing some really interesting things with talking about virtual worlds. I haven't watched it, but it sounds like it's been useful for that. Yeah, there were a couple of VR episodes in the latest season, which I really liked. Um, They weren't really... One of them wasn't really like a very realistic thing at the moment, but it was still really cool. Um, I really like Black Mirror. We should should watch that so we can talk about it at some point. But um, I also... I also played a couple other VR games. I played American Dream. The American Dream, which is done by Surprise Attack Games, who also made Screen Cheat. Um, And it's basically like a parody of American culture where you, um, in the game, you're in like a little coaster, like a little roller coaster thing or a cart. Um, So you just sit there and it moves for you, which is really nice because you don't actually have to worry about moving yourself. Um, And it's also another way of solving the locomotion issue. Yeah. Um, But you basically go through this ride that's like, this is what life would be like if your hands were guns. And so you do everything with guns and it's hilarious and fun. And it's so funny because at some point um, your mother like feeds you food, your baby, and she feeds you food at the end of a gun. And you're supposed to actually like, you have to go up to it and like put your mouth to it. And of course, because you're doing that, oh, wow. you'll open your mouth because you're like, I have to eat the food. And so I assume I look like an idiot just sitting there, like trying to eat this invisible food out of this woman's gun, basically. Um, and yeah, the entire, it's it's so stupid. And I love the game so much. Wow. No, that sounds, uh, that sounds intense. Yeah. It's it's a lot more lighthearted than it sounds, but they'll just say things in the game and you'll just be like, ah, yep. Yep. Yeah. I see what you're doing there. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's like, because it's an Australian perspective on American culture because it's an Australian company. Um, and so it's a very outsider thing, just making fun of American gun culture. Interesting. Interesting. Not in like, not in a mean offensive way, just kind of like, what if everything was done with guns? Like you do no, your job, which yeah. is making bagels with guns. I think it would be easier for me to laugh about it two weeks ago yeah that's very fair yeah yeah <laughs> but i, I think that, it... that kind of that kind of satire is is important you know that's its own genre so that's important too yeah it doesn't do it in like a violent people kind of way it's sort of like every other thing kind of like doing the dishes yeah. and stuff like that yeah, which is uh, like uh, that's exactly where the satire comes in. That's yeah, I think that's that's kind of clever. Yep. Yeah, it's a really cool game. Um, if you ever get a chance, I would suggest trying it out. It's on the Oculus. Um, 
which I had never used before then. But I like the controllers. They're weird. They're like little round things that you just kind of hold. But that was cool. And I also, I've mentioned Earthlight before, um, but I got to give a different demo of that a go, which I didn't like as much because you weren't in space. You were in a swimming pool. Um, <laughs> that applies but, to most things, doesn't it? Yeah, basically. I was still like, they were like, hey, you've done the space demo before, right? And I was like, yeah. They're like, okay, I'll put you in the pool. And I was like, can I do the space demo again? Aww. <laughs> but they put me in the pool anyways. And I also got to try, because um, that's opaque media, I got to try their other new game that they're working on that apparently not many people have played yet um, called Genesis, which is a god game. And basically you are just a god and you can destroy this little village that these little people live in. And it's stupidly fun. It's a bit mean. It's kind of relaxing because you can just like, you, you like crouch down and just pick buildings up and just throw them. Or you can, you can help them rebuild their houses and be a benevolent god, I guess, but that's less fun. Um, but that <laughs> game has the drag the world um locomotion style so you just stand there and you pull the world towards you and that is the only game that made me motion sick so i think i don't know because locomotion in vr games can be really personal some people will get motion sick from some things where other people won't um and i think for me personally the world dragging doesn't work i didn't get super sick from it but it was enough that i noticed it interesting i uh you know as someone who's completely outsider to this i wonder it's interesting that people are trying different ways of locomotion and it'll be interesting to see which kind of catch on more than others do you think that's yeah there's definitely going to be a lot of experimentation i think people game developers need to think kind of outside the box with it which is hard because we're very much inside of a box that we it's hard to get out of um, when I saw the talk, I can't remember what a lot of the other methods were. There were a lot of experimental ones. Like, I think there was one where, like, you could kind of, like, use the device like a grappling hook, which I think was used in a demo at E3, but I can't remember which game that was for. But you use the, yeah, use your things as a grappling hook, and it pulls you towards things. Um, and there was a game that I can't remember the name of that we saw a video of in the talk where you basically, like bungeed through trees with grappling hooks which looked really fun i don't know if that would work for me at all but it looked crazy fun so Mm. i there's a lot of experimentation though a lot of it isn't obvious because vr games are like not many people are playing them outside of people that can afford the headsets um but we definitely need to get away from teleportation in my opinion because it's kind of boring there are cases where the teleportation is diegetic so you have like um powers of something that make it something that you're actually doing in the game as opposed to just a mechanic that you use to get around the game which I like the sound of um yeah I don't know it's interesting actually playing all these games and seeing what people do because there there's some different stuff yeah cool so um how was PAX or did you have anything else you wanted to add about um your VR experiences um there was one other vr game i played which is called symphony of the machine which was like a little puzzle game which was really cute um i don't have much to say about it except that it was really relaxing um and the sound design that was really good because it used a little robot to alert you of things around you because obviously in vr it's 360 and you can't look everywhere at once and so sound is one way to catch a player's attention to make them look in a certain direction and i think that game used it really well cool yeah and then overall, PAX was awesome. There were some really good panels I went to, um, like the Psychology of Dark Souls thing. There was one called PAX Mance, which my friend 
most of the people on the panel are my friends at this point um but it's basically about in-game romance and they had a big screen that was basically live tweets using the paxmance hashtag so if you follow me on twitter you probably saw my tweets from that um and i got a lot of like bad puns up on that wall which was great nice it was I great here in the they audience called it paxmance yeah it's the second year they've done it and it's a really really fun panel because it's just like a bunch of really cool people discussing romance and games and interacting with the audience through twitter and I really love it. If anyone ever goes to PAX Australia, I seriously recommend that panel. It is easily my favorite every year I've been of the last two years it's been running. Um, and then there was Nano Jam, which is basically a bunch of designers, a bunch of game developers, like designing games that were based off of prompts on Twitter as well. And so they had stuff like gluten-free, they had to prompt like gluten-free disco with hamburger backpack and they had to design a game based off of that like they don't make the game they just design it and then when they're done the audience has to tell them they can ship it and it's so much fun it's so funny and um rami malik i think um no it's rami ismail um who is a game developer he's half of Lambear. he was on that and he is a hilarious dude if you've ever seen him talk he is so funny and he's so smart and i think that panel really really worked so well because of him but also everybody else on the panel was really funny and i didn't learn anything from it but it was just great <laughs> yeah that sounds like fun yeah but um there were a couple games i played that weren't vr games that were just like on point and one of them was ab abby i don't know how to say it but it's like a little game a little puzzle game about robots who are friends and it's post-apocalyptic i think and it's largely environmental storytelling and I'm probably going to talk about that more another time when I have more on it. But that's a really cool game. Keep an eye out for that. There was also the Artful Escape of Francis Vendetti, which I am literally obsessed with now. It was such a cool game. I ignored all the emails for it before the convention because it was like, it's a narrative game. And I was like, cool. And then I looked in, it was about like a rock opera kind of thing. And I was like, whatever, that's not my subject. I don't care. But then I actually saw it at PAX and I got told to play it by someone else i went over and looked at it with my friend um rukia and we just stood there for like 10 minutes watching somebody else play the demo and it's so gorgeous like the art design is just beautiful and the landscape in the demo was like the snowy glittering pink landscape it was so pink and so sparkly and you just don't see that in games and i was blown away by how gorgeous it was and it's a game where you play as a guy called Francis Vendetti, who's basically fallen into this dream kind of world before his own concert later that day. And he has to get home so he can get to his concert. And it's about, I think it's about his fears and anxieties about becoming a star in the shadow of his uncle, who's a huge star. Um, and the writing is kind of like, it's quite purple prose, but it works really well for the style of the game. It's really gorgeous writing. There's a couple times where it was a bit over the top, but the rest of it was really nice. And the sound design and the music are just breathtakingly majestic. It's such a good game. And it didn't get kickstarted. And I'm so mad, even though they're still working on it. They're still working and it's fine. It's going to happen. But I'm just like, no, this game is so good and it needs to happen. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like I've never thought of combining that like super theatrical rock opera thing with a narrative game, but it seems like it makes perfect sense because it's that same sort of level of like theatricality and immersion. It's so overdramatic and theatrical and they love it. 
um, I think their main issue is that the platforming is a bit iffy because it's not really a platformer game. It's a, it's a narrative game, but they've got platforming in between the narrative bits to kind of give you something to do. Um, and if they tweak that a bit more, I think that'll be good. It's really cool because there's no battles. All you do is like jam with monsters or other things. So you huh. match. It's kind of like a memory matching kind of thing where they play some music and you've got to match that and then add on to that yourself and it works really well because it's quite it's not violent it's a non-violent game and it's just about discovering yourself and discovering this world and it's just everything about it everything that the developers who were talking to me said made it sound even better apparently it's going to have branching dialogue and your choices are going to affect things as well and i'm just like oh my god this game is gorgeous i love it so much Cool. Now, is that available now, or what systems will be will it be available for eventually? It's not available yet. I know it's going to be on PC. Um, I don't know about other things, though. I think okay. Maybe Xbox. But yeah, it, it's been greenlit. Um, I think it'll be coming out next year. I can't 100% remember off the top of my head. Um... Yeah, definitely PC. So look out for that. And just, oh my god, that is my top recommendation from PAX, 100%. Oh, cool. All right. Yeah, Um, Yeah, so... One of these um, days, maybe I'll have a report of uh, actual (laughs) hands-on show gameplay like that. But for now, I appreciate you uh, bringing your insight. Yeah, and I also just want to like quickly mention that I played, not a PAX, just it was the other day, I played The Beginner's Guide, which is made by the guy who did Stanley Parable, or one of the guys that did Stanley Parable. So if you've played that, you kind of know what you're getting into a little bit with um, The Beginner's Guide. I'm not going to talk about it too much, because it's a game that you kind of need to go into without knowing anything, but it was a really interesting game. Um, I felt disgusting and confused when I'd finished it which is a weird feeling to have at the end of a game um it's a really intense experience and I would definitely recommend playing it but go into it prepared for feeling bad about what you're doing interesting that's really all I can say but yeah okay I don't want to ask too many questions if the whole point is that you're not really supposed to know going in so Feel free to ask a question, though, if you want. I'll answer to the best of my ability. <laughs> well, it's funny because I've heard people, maybe maybe mostly you, maybe some other people, but talking about this on social media, and I didn't get a good sense of, like, what it was. Is it confusing in a good way, or is it only confusing in that you probably shouldn't explain it before you play it? It's confusing in a way that you shouldn't explain it. Um there are very different reactions to the game. When I talked about it on Twitter, some people really loved it. Some people really hate it to the point that they are disgusted at the thought of the game. Um, and so it is a vastly intense game emotionally. Um, it's it's a narrative experience. So it's not much of a game. There's not much gameplay. You just kind of walk through this game that's happening. Um, but it's a really interesting story and emotional experience i guess okay cool yeah and i was not prepared going into it so be prepared because some people may not like it if they're not ready um but yeah good game try it you might not like it (laughs) but yeah speaking of games that 
aren't hopefully distressing experiences. Mass Effect Andromeda's happening next year. It's definitely going to be a distressing experience. I don't know why I said that. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, the trailer dropped on November 7th, which is in seven day for those who aren't big Mass Effect fans. Um, and it was interesting. What did you think about it? So I was really excited for this, but it left me with maybe more soul searching than pure excitement, more or more soul searching than I wanted. So I um I was excited for the trailer. I felt that it was a little generic, like it didn't give us much that we hadn't seen before. And I was excited for it, but I was like, oh, I'm excited about the snake robot in the desert, or I think the armor looks cool. But like those are all things that the Halo 5 trailers had, too. Um, and even the character designs, I think they were a little safe. So I'm I'm tentative about it, which I didn't want to be. And that's when I started the soul-searching, the, like, what if this just plain doesn't mean to me what Shepard meant to me? So I, I'm, a little, I'm a little disappointed right now, unfortunately. Yeah, I really feel that. The trailer did not do much for me it did just show a lot of the same old the giant monsters seem kind of cool but also halo kind of already did that, did that so yeah, like, yeah my thoughts in quick succession were like oh that's really cool oh that's what all video games look like now <laughs> yeah yeah and mm-hmm. also the fact that they used um scott Ryder as the main character for the trailer i was just like okay whatever fine they- yeah, they did, which is I'm I'm gonna go into my dishonored standing again, but they uh had Emily in all the promotions and the live action trailer was all about Emily and I was like, Look, Andromeda, this is the direction we're going. People have been clamoring about this since Mass Effect two. Like, can't you give us give us this? Yeah, I remember for Dragon Age Inquisition they were gonna use they said they were gonna use the female inquisitor in their trailers and they just never did and i'm so like i get that the developers and the marketing are divorced from each other somewhat but i'm also like no make this happen please yeah and i would have been a bit less um i guess rather i'd be a bit more forgiving if the rest of it had grabbed me yeah yeah i'm i'm so unenthused about the idea of it being a family thing like you've got daddy writer and his two children and i just don't care about human families in my space games i just don't care at uh-huh. all and there's just so much focus on humans in the trailer and i want the aliens i just want like the asari and the turians and the krogan and whatever new species we get i want that stuff so i don't really have any feelings either way about the family i will kind of you know take it as it comes but the uh, the villains in this game are aliens, and I was also excited for more aliens, but I was really kind of bored by the reveal of the Ket, which are the villains and oh, which yeah. came later in the week. They just they just look like humans with, with kind of strange like coral accoutrements on them. And the video that I watched, um, Game Informer has a lot of coverage. The video that I watched about their design was like, oh, we wanted to make them kind of sleek looking and recognizable, and we tried to make their faces have a lot of personality, but all it came down to was that their faces just look like human faces. Yeah. And 
I'm just kind of, I'm just very bored by them, which is disappointing because, like, give me a good alien villain and, like, you've sold me on it. But at the same time, very few things would unsell me on this. Like, I'm still here for it. Like, I'm still gonna buy it. I'm, but at the same time, I'm just kind of like, I think they played it really safe. What, what do you think about the, the cat? Yeah, I agree. When I saw that, like, they sound cool. I like the sound of their voices in the trailer, but actually seeing their design, I was just like, eh, they look kind of like a weird side race out of the first three games or something. Like, they don't look like an, I don't know what the word I want is. I've totally lost it. Um, A really strong, solid, iconic alien race to be a villain. Like, Saren in the first game... He looked really cool. He was a really cool looking character because he was just a Tyrion with like extra stuff. Um, (laughs) And then now we have this kind of like boring looking alien, which looks kind of similar to a whole bunch of other aliens from other things. And also, yeah, a little bit too human in the face, which is just boring as well, especially when they're supposed to be something like scary. Making them look so human kind of takes away from that. Yeah. And they look a lot like the the didact, the uh, forerunners, I think. From Halo, and they might still be scary. I'm, I'm all here for finding out what that character is, but nothing about it really, really grabbed me. So, how how do you feel about the two characters they have revealed? The the, the Asari that we were so enthused about when the the first gameplay trailer came out, and Liam, who's the human, um, the first human companion they have announced. What do you think about them? I'm curious to see Liam's face. Um, because we haven't seen it yet, have we? Well, I think there's some debate over whether he's the same character we saw in the trailer. Um, this little guide that that actually you sent to me on Tumblr has that he was the black character, or no, he may not have been the same character that we've seen in concept art before. Yeah, so there's like a I'm not thing. entirely sure. Yeah, like, nobody's really sure what he looks like yet, so I'm kind of holding off until he is proven to not be a boring white guy, basically, just because I'm bored of that in games. No offense to white guys, you guys are great, but I am kind of bored of them as companions in games. Um, It 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 would be cool for it to be something else. It looks like in the AMA, um, Joe Juba said he was black i think we do know that we don't know that he's the same character we've seen in previous art yeah i'm apparently he also has awesome hair i remember someone saying which i'm curious to see what his hair looks like then um i also have trouble believing that bioware can have awesome hair given their track record with games um (laughs) but i am excited about pb kind of cautious because they keep trying to reaffirm the fact she's not liara i'm like if you have to keep telling us that that worries me i agree i i agree um the more so she was described as both bubbly and a little bit antisocial it says she doesn't care about rules or culture she's going around looking for um artifacts to find like things to study and at the same time as there's a lot there, her personality seems to like vary widely, so maybe she's like this wisecracking lone wolf character. But also there was the like they're kinda trying to go the uh Liara direction to make her like a cute scientist, and I'm a little worried about that. 
I wanted something a bit more unique. But but also I realized I was trying to make myself feel better about this. Um, I don't usually like the main companions in in Bioware games. I didn't really care for Jacob or Miranda. I liked Garrus, but I'm not a huge fan of Caden or Ashley. Like the first ones they introduce are never my favorites. So maybe this will just be these are the first ones and there'll be more that I'll like more later. Yeah, I'm just a little bit disappointed that I'm not super enthused about the Asari, and it's entirely possible that'll change once I start playing the game, but just, so far, it does kind of sound like they're like, Liara, but slightly different, and also, she's purple? Is she purple? She is purplish, yeah. Yeah, I know, like, both of us were really ready, I was really ready to like her, and I'm not sure. Yeah, but I am curious about relationships relationships in this game because um from the same thing that i linked you to um with the ama with joe um apparently like bioware isn't saying much about relationships and romances because they don't want to spoil anything but they're committed to offering a broader range of interactions and that romances will depend on the characters themselves so you've got some characters that aren't romanceable others can be flings others are long term some might be cool with you having other relationships which i think is cool because bioware for a while has been wanting to bring in polyamorous stuff but has been struggling because it's really hard to do mechanically um and he also apparently implied that sex isn't the culmination of any of the relationships which is really cool because that is kind of an issue in bioware games is that you get to that point in a relationship and then the relationship kind of just stops growing or being anything else in the game yeah this is uh, sort of like what we've talked about before, about how they might be introducing um, either asexual relationships or sort of friendship branches. Um, so I'm, and I'm still where I was before, which was we'll see, you know? And yeah. um, there's the writer part of me who's like, I want well-written relationships and different uh, variety for all kinds of variety of players. And then there's the just fan me who's just like, I just want to really like a character. Like, <laughs> yeah. so we'll see if both or neither of those of those wishes are fulfilled. Yeah, I'm really hoping for fulfilling friendship roots in these games because I really... I've really liked romancing Liara, and I've enjoyed... I've romanced most of the characters in the Mass Effect games now, but actually playing their friendship routes are almost never as fulfilling because you just don't learn about their characters that much. Like, you do the loyalty mission, you discover it that much, and then beyond that, they don't really talk to you about themselves, and you don't really have a relationship with them except for Morden, who isn't a romance. So I really hope that this next game does give you a deeper understanding of your other teammates, which would also make it harder when they eventually make you choose between two of them to kill yeah (laughs) yeah so actually that kind of connects to this other this other point that um the creative director mark walters has said that loyalty missions are much more optional than they were before which i'm curious about how they um get like involved that in the gameplay at the same time as having these various different stages of romances so like you don't have to do loyalty missions but you're also going to be expected to be more emotionally engaged with the characters um i really liked the loyalty missions i thought they were i mean they were part of the bedrock of how those games worked they were uh, a way to get to you to explore the world and to know the characters a bit better and some of the best storytelling was in the loyalty missions i think so i kind of 
kind of makes me sad to think of them not being as uh, as important, but I don't think they're going to drop the ball on character writing. They always do really good character writing, even if it's not, you know, perfect to what I would like it to be. So, I don't know. How do you think about... What do you think about that? I wonder what they're going to... Like, what they mean with that. Because are they optional in that yeah. you don't have to do them and then characters won't die at the end of the game? Or leave you? Or is it... Like, is it optional in an important way? Or optional kind of in a... Whatever kind of way. Like... I mean, you can kind of say loyalty missions in Mass Effect 2 are optional. You just end up with dead characters at the end. So I'm I'm curious what they actually mean by that in, in the end when the game comes out. Um, Dragon Age Inquisition, the loyalty missions were kind of optional on that as well, honestly. Like, I didn't do Cole's loyalty mission because the game kept glitching for me at the end of it, so I couldn't actually complete it. Which meant that I lost him for the final battle, but he was still at my party after that, so it didn't really mean anything. I wonder if they're kind of taking that approach that you can affect their loyalty to you in other ways and other choices make important things happen yeah. as opposed to just the loyalty missions themselves, which would be interesting because then you have different routes to approach a relationship. Yeah. I guess my sort of question about this is I've never come across a, a Bioware fan who said... I wish we had less characters, though. Or, like, I wish we had less loyalty yeah. missions. I, and maybe that's just because of the, the people I'm talking to, but I, um, I'm curious to see how this manifests. Yeah, and maybe it just means that, like, their loyalty isn't just gained through loyalty missions. Because, I mean, that was kind of like a thing. You did one thing and they were indebted to you for the rest of their lives. Well, yeah, maybe true. they're trying right. to find a way from that. Yeah, more of a mechanic thing versus, like, it's not like we're taking storytelling away. We're just taking this mechanic by which your characters might die and changing it. Yeah, which I'm interested to see. It's I have really mixed opinions on Dragon Age Inquisition, and while I know there are different teams working on them, a lot goes between the teams. And I worry that some of the stuff that I didn't like in Inquisition is going to make its way into Andromeda. Like, they've been talking about how they want really open world stuff and, like, really big planets you can explore. And that was something I really didn't like in Inquisition because they're really linear games. Like, the storytelling is quite... It's it's really strong. You follow the story. Um, and that's why in the first three Mass Effect games, you basically settle in your story that you followed and you were kind of railroaded... Whoops. Railroaded to um the maps somewhat. And in Inquisition, they spread that out and made the world really big. And so you kind of lost track of the story. And I'm worried Andromeda's going to do that because of how they've talked about how much they want an open world. But it's possible that that team will be able to handle it better. I, I don't know. Hmm. I always want more world building in these. I did feel that, like, especially by the time when we got to Mass Effect 3, where you, obviously the technical ability of the studio was up to what the game wanted to do in terms of storytelling, I felt that the areas where you could just go wander around were quite small. So yeah. I'd be fine with having larger um, city, you know, planet areas. But then you do get into that that question of does it get boring i haven't played inquisition so i can't really make that comparison i think inquisition's issue was also just the main story wasn't compelling enough to really keep drawing you back to it when you got distracted by a big world i would like i liked the idea of the first mass effect game where you could kind of just land on a planet and explore there and i'm hoping it's similar to that that it's not like essential places you have to go but they're just there to look at anyways but i have i mean i don't work for 
um, Bioware, so I have no clue what they're actually doing there. Uh, well, there's um, a couple more interesting things from this AMA that I think are kind of related. It, it says there's a, a hub area, not as big as the Citadel, but a sort of colony area where you can go walk around. And the idea of exploration is so baked into this game. It's all about finding new areas. So I wonder how that will manifest, whether you sort of have to unlock and discover new uh, new areas or or how that's sort of involved with the gameplay. Yeah, I wonder. It feels a little bit like they're going a little bit back to Mass Effect 1 in some ways. Like, yeah. that game had mm-hmm. some exploration things. Like, if you, in the first game where you're supposed to find Liara, it's like, we kind of know where she is, we're not really that sure, and so you can explore a bunch of little different planets to see if you can track her down. Um, and I wonder if it's going to be kind of like that. Like, you the game doesn't exactly tell you where things are a lot of the time. You just have to go find it yourself, which I don't like because I'm a baby and I just want to be told where to go. But also it's really cool gameplay wise. Well, I think that depends a lot on whether the gameplay itself is fun, because I think that could be really entertaining if you had a a vehicle that was a little more uh, predictable (laughs) than the Mako was. And then I barely used the vehicle in the later games because the uh, exploration was so optional. So if it, I guess it just comes down to if it's fun, it's fun. Yeah, I really liked the Vaco. I wouldn't mind it coming back, but I understand people not liking it. Um, <laughs> I didn't. It didn't bug me as much as it bugged some other people, but it wasn't like I looked forward to it in the same way <laughs> that I would look forward to traversing like an Assassin's Creed city or something. Ah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. One thing I do like the sounds of with this game is that they're like rehauling their uh, morality system, like they're not using Paragon and Renegade, it's going to be more complex, apparently. Um, and when it gives you prompts and cutscenes to do actions, it's not going to be like, this is a Paragon action, this is a Renegade action. It just gives you a prompt to do something. And then the decision goes from there kind of thing, which I think is interesting because, yeah, in Mass Effect 3, there were times when you would, I think it was in 3, where you would have to do a renegade action or else you would die, basically. Like, something gets thrown at you and you have to deflect it or whatever with a renegade action. If you don't do it, you get your head cut off or whatever. I'm totally exaggerating. I don't remember what it is because I haven't played in a while. <laughs> but because it gave you, like, because I was playing pure Paragon character, when it gave me those prompts that you had to get or else you'd get life over, game over, um, I wouldn't push them because I'd be like, no, that's renegade. Like, it's just bred totally out of me. Um and so actually taking that away from you and not making it like a morality-based decision right then and there, it's more based on the context of what's happening within the cutscene, I think is good. Yeah, and it, it says here that the dialogue wheel options have four choices, head, heart, professional, and casual. And I don't know how those map, like whether you can sort of go in between them or choose only one or whatever but that sounds like it could could manifest in really interesting ways it sounds somewhat similar to um dragon age um because in dragon age 2 you basically have three different dialogue choices and then like three others which aren't actually that important but you have um sarcastic aggressive or whatever it is um and diplomatic and mm-hmm. you can play your hawk using those three options. And then, yeah, there's the other options, which I can't remember what they are, but they're not important. They don't actually affect your character that much. Um, but a lot of people, like, 
would play sarcastic hawk because they're really witty and wry and it's really funny to play them and they would just kind of ignore the diplomatic version because it's kind of boring um and then in inquisition they kind of have a similar thing like you you have icons when you choose some selections it'll be like it's an emotional one or it's an angry one stuff like that um and so i think they're kind of drawing from that a little bit for andromeda and i that works really well but you've got to have a really strong personality aligned with each of the choices or else it gets some of them just get really boring and you don't pick them and i think that was an issue with inquisition was that for one thing your choices weren't always aligned with a certain thing sometimes they were just there and you didn't know what it would actually end up coming out as um and also all of the personalities in inquisition were really boring <laughs> and i don't uh-huh. want like compared to shepherd or hawk who were like really strong personalities depending on which um which whether you went paragon or aggressive or whatever I want Andromeda to do that again. So I like I'm I like that they're not just doing like you're a good person or you're a bad person. Um but like the idea of like professional and casual, I'm just like I don't know what those ones. I kind of like to think of it as a um less you have to choose one and more you might edge toward one if they were all mapped together. So kind of like the the tabletop like chaotic neutral thing. Where, like, yeah. your character could end up being heart and professional or something. That's probably what I would be. And you, you can map to the different orientations that way instead of just picking one. But then I feel like you would run into the, the Mass Effect problem, which is that if you don't agree with everything that corresponds to your moral point, you won't get enough points, like, yeah. numerical points to unlock things. That was something I hated in Mass Effect 3. It was like, if you didn't choose these three particular Paragon options throughout the game, you can't save this one character at the end. And I was like, this is really dumb and arbitrary. And I yeah. really hope Andromeda takes that out because I like their idea of like you being a good enough person to make these choices. Like in Mass Effect 1, it kind of works. Um, at the end, when you're talking to Saren, it gives you a choice there that's based on your Paragon and Renegade level, which is kind of annoying if you... It's your first time playing the game, you didn't understand what was happening. But it's a cool moral thing to be like, your choices through the game have affected this. But other times it just seems really stupid and arbitrary and you have to go through like different dialogue branches and go through all this other stuff to figure it out. And I hope Andromeda's rehauling that part of their morality and conversation thing too. Yeah, and I think Mass Effect has always had that. Like, it always goes back to... uh spoilers for mass effect one you can lose uh rex very easily if you don't have a oh paragon God, points yeah. in the very beginning and it's horrible and um you didn't, it made like, so you many people know. so many people hate ashley and ashley's a really great character i really love ashley but because it's so hard for people to know at the start of the game that making these choices will lead to rex's death and it's really easy for him to die he's never died for me unless i did it on purpose but it is really easy for it to happen um and it just straight up, like, for a bunch of people, like, because right after that, you can have the choice to kill Ashley. And people are like, well, she just killed Rex. I'm going to kill her. And it was, I think that was a really bad narrative decision to put that option there. Um, I mean, the hmm. option with Rex there, because it just straight up leads to Ashley's death so often. So bad. Um, but, yeah. I thought of it as connecting so directly to the way people think about Ashley. But I think that's exactly right. And when I when I played the first couple times, I just didn't know what I'd what I needed to do to get enough points. And so I, I lost him. 
Yeah, and he's a great character. Like, he's a really strong character throughout all three games, so it's really sad you can lose him so early in the first game. Um, yeah. I definitely think Bioware has learnt from that a lot. Um, I do want a Vermeer-like choice, though. Like, I want them to make me choose and break my own heart. Um, yeah, And I want it I in agree. the first game, because it's really mean I'm- in later games. I definitely don't want to come off as saying, like, I think they should telegraph everything because the surprising heart-wrenching stuff is some of the greatest stuff about Bioware. It's yeah. the, I want to I want to be clear that my character knows what they're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that that's definitely it. Like, don't tell me what everything is going to lead to, but also, like, if points, like... Paragon and Renegade and whatever are going to actually lead to things that affect the stuff so severely. Make sure that you, both you the player and the character you're controlling, understand that your actions have such intense repercussions in these cases. Um, And I think possibly using these different personalities or whatever they are, traits, um, in the conversation probably leads to less drastic issues because they're not really like, you're a bad person or you're a good person. They're like, you're a slightly different kind of person. Um, but then I wonder how different playing the character is going to be if you pick a different personality type later on in a different playthrough. Um, I'm sure they've got good writers for that, so I, I have faith in that. But I'm also just like, what does this mean? What is it going to lead to? What are going to be your moral choices? I don't <laughs> understand. Like, what is your moral choice between professional and casual? I don't know. Just arriving on hmm. time to work or something? <laughs> it's whether you wear a tie or not. <laughs> yeah, like that <laughs> That one especially, I, I have sort of trouble seeing what the stakes would be, which is why I'm picturing it more as a, um, a spectrum than as like you just pick one and go with it the whole time. Yeah, and maybe the big choices won't really be like a Paragon or Renegade or like the, the four different things. Like they'll probably still end up giving you like the two choices or the three choices kind of thing for the big <laughs> things and they won't actually be related directly to those traits I hope, because they seem like weird traits to link to really big choices. Um, but they'll probably affect how other characters respond to you and how the world responds to you. I, I do love the idea of the professional ending, because I feel like it'd be like that scene from <laughs> Zootopia where the fox thinks he's gotten away and she's like, I gotcha on tax evasion. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Oh, what if that's how you can catch the main bad guy in the end, if you play professionally? <laughs> I hope so. I, and like, I can't emphasize enough that for all I am increasingly critical of this game, I'm going to buy it. Like my my yeah. my Mass Effect loyalty is really strong, which is something I'm almost feeling a little conflicted about. Like, am I blinded to it because I love it? You know. Well, I mean, you're being critical of it, but you still love it. So I think that's good. If you're like, these things might be not good, but I'm still going to love it anyways, then I think you've got an issue. But I think you're fine. Um, I'm kind of in a similar place because with the first three games, I just went into them like blindly loving them after the first game. And now I have this and I'm like, okay. I'm more excited for Dragon Age 4 than I am for Mass Effect Andromeda, which is something I never thought I'd say. But somehow it's happened. Yeah, wow. It's mostly wow. because there's so many hints that Dragon Age 4 is going to be in Tevinter. And that's a conversation for a totally different time, but I just love Tevinter so much. I hate Dragon Age a lot of the time, but love Tevinter. 
I uh, am definitely looking forward to all the Bioware conversations. We're going to have to have like three episodes about Andromeda as we play through it. Oh, yeah. It's going to be good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So any other thoughts on Andromeda? No, I think that's all. The trailer is definitely worth watching. It's pretty. It's just pretty in the same way as a lot of other games have been lately. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really pretty. And I'm so scared that it's going to break my laptop when I get it. Um, (laughs) But it looks good. And it's going to be interesting seeing how they do it. Um, Yeah, we'll talk on this more, obviously, in the future because it's Mass Effect and we love it. Um, But for now, that's us for this fortnight instead of this week. I finally said fortnight. Um, I'm Seth. And... I have Megan with me. Megan, where can people find you online? I can be found at Blog Full of Words on Twitter. I write Star Wars and video game reviews for Den of Geek. I have some stuff on StarWars.com, and my entire like portfolio can be found uh, at Blog Full of Words, either on Twitter or Facebook. Awesome. And you can find me on Twitter at Wanderlustin, W-A-N-D-E-R-L-U-S-T-I-N. You can also find me on my website, notsafwork.com, and you can find my video game reviews slash analyses on toshistation.net. And you can also find our Twitter, Western Reaches, at Western underscore Reaches. And you should totally talk to us there because we're cool people. And so yeah, for now, this is us, and don't forget to check the Western Reaches.